Hello, this is Reverend Billy. Hi, this is Savitri D with the Church of Stop Shopping, and we're this week's guests on Metapod. Can I get an Earthaluya? Earthaluya! This is Metapod, where we unpack the web's most interesting podcasts and the stories behind them. This is Metapod, and I'm Wendy. Thanks for tuning in. The theme of activism continues this week. Activism was central to the last episode of Metapod, which was episode 50, featuring Goodniks, a podcast about people who do good in the world. But this episode, we're going left of center and meeting two radical performance artist-activists based in New York City. That's Reverend Billy and Savitri D., The pair are known in New York for their provocative public performance activism around issues of capitalism and consumerism. In the last several years, the two have extended their action to issues related to climate change and the environment. Much of Reverend Billy and Savitri D's work is done with a community of like-minded performance activists known as the Church of Stop Shopping. This includes artists, musicians, and the Stop Shopping Choir. Earth Riot is a radio and podcast project of theirs that further spreads the message to challenge capitalism and social structures that institutionalize social inequality. Just a quick note before I start the tape, you'll hear Reverend Billy refer to the sixth extinction. This is a reference to a book of the same title by Elizabeth Colbert. There is a link for more information about the book in the show notes. So, although the message is one of serious peril for all forms of life on Earth, Earth Riot delivers an entertaining musical mashup of environmental news and heartfelt thought starters about life, death, renewal, and the world around us. As you'll hear Billy say, they are using music and song to build community and lift each other up, just as many successful social movements before them have done. It's a fantastical podcast show, and as you'll hear me say, I really enjoy keeping Reverend Billy's stream of thought in my ears while in the grocery store contemplating mundane decisions like which frozen pizza to buy. I'd also like to thank my dear friend Kathleen for introducing me to Reverend Billy back in the early 2000s when we lived in New York City. So I'll start the tape. Reverend Billy and Savitri D, welcome to Metapod. Oh, thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Am I allowed to ask for an Earthaluya right away? Yes, Earthaluya, child. Earthaluya. <laughs> Thank you for making time to talk to me about Earth Riot. It's a one of a kind podcast, which should be no surprise given your other work. And hopefully we can touch on that a bit. But first, tell us about the Earth Riot podcast and what is so unique about it. To my experience in, in the radio and podcast worlds, and we swing both ways, it makes no, no pretense about how radical it is. We, we take the position that the sixth extinction is now accelerating, that we are minutes or days or months away from culture flipping upside down and inside out. The world is radical, and we need to make more than adjustments, more than revisions, a radical change is, is about to take place. I think also um, when we sort of conceived of and, and generated this project, 
um, on the radio and making podcasts. You know, we're watching the demise of public space all around us. We have less and less avenues for communication, and that is happening coincidence, coincident with the, with the Earth's crisis. And we need more and more to talk to each other instead of less and less. And so um, I think for us, it was a way to reach further and to, to, to talk to people who were further away. And also um, this sort of accidental audience that happens with radio and podcast and find new people to talk to. And I think what really um, matters to us about the show is speaking honestly about every part of the Earth's crisis, not just the sort of tyrannical presence of data or, um, you know, rational right thinking about, uh, you know, policy and government, but to also address like the emotional reality of crisis or how communities are responding or how animals, how it's affecting animals to the best of our knowledge. You know, so we try to synthesize like this very broad um, view of the Earth's crisis from an honest sort of human perspective, not be chauvinist, you know. <laughs> I must say that containing a riot into a 30 minute podcast is quite an achievement, which I respect. My question there is, is there something special about the podcast format? And I think Savitri's just sort of touched on it a bit. Is there something special about the format that helps Earth Riot achieve its goals or maybe reach a certain audience that you might otherwise not? Well, we know that a lot of podcast people are in, in subways with phones or they're at work and they're cheating, you know, they're kind of down under the desk, you know, listening to their <laughs> podcast. You know, they, we know that there's something there's something quite radical about the saturation of society by podcasting. We like that. And that that comments on Savitri's point about public space. We're inventing new public space with the podcasting tradition. And that's just in the tradition also of animals and mushrooms and reptiles and butterflies, you know, big cats and sleeping owls. The evolution of nature is right now completely in motion and you hear in the background children in the schoolyard next door <laughs> they're they in are. my backyard too don't worry <laughs> <laughs> they're like animals looking for the the edges of a new ecosystem as well so i mean i think that both billy and i are from the west of the united states and grew up you know in remote places with the radio and I can't tell you how many thousands of miles I've driven with the um, with the radio on, listening to a person talk to me, listening to music. But this incredible intimacy you feel hearing a voice um, wherever you are. And I, I think for me, it's kind of a return to the most original technology, which is like talking and listening, right? And um, there's something really basic about that amidst the chaos of our present moment and this kind of constant saturation of, 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 of social media and the news cycle and um, the way we osmotically absorb all this stuff all the time. Um, there's something really special and intimate about listening to a person talk to you and say things to you. And I, I have felt for many years like the um, radio and podcasts are like, this is a place you can do that still. It's sort of um, special, you know, and, and intimate. And I really, uh, I really love that for myself as a listener, but also as a maker of things. 
Um, it's really different to talk into a microphone to one person than it is to talk to, a, you know, a big room full of an audience or, mm-hmm. um, you know, or never mind that, like be on the street talking to like a thousand people at a rally or, or at a protest and you never know who's listening. Um, knowing there's that actual connection there in a podcast is really special to me. I think what's interesting about your show, for me personally, I'll just say, um, I can listen to quite radical commentary while I'm in the frozen aisle at the supermarket looking for a pizza for dinner. So I may be listening to some concepts that Reverend Billy is putting out there. I may be in this very weird space of actually being willing to accept those ideas when maybe I wouldn't be otherwise. This sort of multitasking, I suppose, in the the audio space. Oh my God. <laughs> so Billy, you've probably helped me pick out a pizza at the supermarket without even knowing it. You know, I just hope I guided you towards uh, <laughs> a vegetarian solution and vegan. You know, I, <laughs> vegan, vegan, alluya. <laughs> I, I wanted to mention that I'm not sure this ties in logically with anything we've said so far. Savitri said we were from the West and one of the, one of the pleasures of the radio part of our work is um, we're in about 60 stations, England and Canada and the United States mostly. Uh, we've taken the time to sell our radio show to local stations where we lived. So for Savitri, it's Taos, New Mexico, and that's KCEI. And that goes out across as a, as a earth-defending show, especially it matters, it goes out across the um, Zuni and Apache and Uh, Hopi and Navajo tribes there uh, in New Mexico and Arizona. Mm -hmm. And then where I lived in Minnesota and South Dakota, we are broadcast on WOJB, which OJB stands for Ojibwe. That goes out across Standing Rock and the Line 3, which we've helped defend Anishinaabe, Ojibwe, Lakota, Sioux, and all the way out to the the Paiutes. um, That's a strong signal. So that is also being podcast at the same time in the same place. I just thought I'd mention that apropos of being Western people who grew up in the like less media intense, less consumerized areas where talking and listening and storytelling uh, still were primary. We've taken the time to, to, if we can't be in New Mexico and South Dakota as much as we would like to be from New York, especially during COVID, um, we do get to send out our 29-minute gem. So you you are based in New York City much of the time, I think. Mm-hmm, yeah. What, if anything, is different about activism in New York City than other places in the U.S. or maybe outside of the U.S.? Well, there's 10,000 journalists, at least, living in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one big difference. Um, I think also New York at least has the possibility of really pluralistic protest and activism um, because there are so many kinds of people here. I mean, that presents its own problems, but I think we have the potential to really um, be a truly diverse and, and complex ecosystem of, act, of activism here in a way that most places don't. Maybe parts of London have that too. Um, I think also there's a, a constant stream of people coming and going here. So we're able to encounter a lot of people for the first time um, and maybe the last time, but 
um, you do have exposure to a lot of people here in, in a very special way because there's so much motion and movement. And then I think as, as earth workers and um, we have a really specific challenge, which is how to tell the story of the earth in a place that is almost entirely built by human hands. Um, and, and that is a really difficult <laughs> thing to overcome. And we, we've learned really that the wildness that exists here is, is largely a human wildness. Um, and so we, we try to generate that wildness amongst ourselves with other people. And in doing so, then we have to transfer that and uh, teach people really that that is the same wildness that exists in the Earth's ecosystems, in the forest or in the desert or um, just in a little piece of ancient grassland, you know. So I think New York is an exciting place to be an activist. It's also a place where movements come and go and things get really, really intense and then just it dissipates completely. So I think... It's a great laboratory, I guess. That's the easiest way to say it. It's a great laboratory for activism because there's there's so many parts. Amen. Earth Riot and really a lot of your work that, that I know is incredibly imaginative. And the podcast is a few special segments presented by you, Savitri. Uh, the news from the natural world and sounds of extinction. Can you tell us a bit about the thinking behind those fairly contemplative elements of the podcast. Yeah, News from the Natural World is a synthesis, really, of news and scientific news and uh, weather news and sometimes medical news from around the world um, every week. It's about 10 minutes of, of information. And one of the things I try to do when I'm making the, the news is decenter the human from the news. So You'll, if you start reading news with this mindset, you, you realize it's they'll report on something, but it's always about how it affects humans, you know, oh, like this terrible weather system, but it's always about the human impact of that, right? And I try to weave a newscast that isn't always human-centric, that includes animals and plants and even just the earth itself, even just dirt, you know, from a non-human-centric point of view. Which isn't to say that humans aren't part of that. Of course, we are a part of that. But just training our own minds to decenter ourselves from the story of the earth um, is is one of my main goals with that. And then the sounds of extinction is just it's really a way to mark the loss, I guess, of so many species and the potential loss of so many species, and just take a couple of minutes to really contemplate what that means like so we play a, the the song of a bird who's long extinct the kawaii bird say in hawaii extinct since the late 80s we hear that song and it's the last time anyone heard it and it's just deeply moving to me to hear these sounds knowing they they won't be heard again and then to get ahead of that a little to know that like hey you know what some species have almost gone extinct and then not gone extinct and I don't just mean like cuddly bears and you know this sort of Sierra Club view of that but like on a on a deeper level you know what it means for us to be alone in the world we live in in symbiosis with other species and we really need to we really need to take whatever steps we have to to care in a real everyday way about about that loss. We can't live here alone, you know? And also just, would we want to? I wouldn't want to. So 
these are just some of the things that go into those two segments. But I will say it's been a, a huge education for me to just spend many hours a week reading scientific news. And it's hard, like it's soul crushing. You know, every week I have to like sort of rebuild myself because it's, the news is just so bad. <laughs> yeah. So I try to include some good news too, like, oh my God, this species we thought was extinct, it isn't extinct. Or, hey, every week there are multiple new species, new creatures, new plant life discovered for the first time, recorded by science for the first time. And I think ultimately, what this all shows us is how little we know. You know, we have just scratched the surface of the natural world. We don't know anything about it. So Ooh. there's a lot there. For Metapod listeners who are not familiar with either of you, can you tell them a bit about some of the other activities that are connected to Earth Riot? Well, Earth Riot is filled with the music of the Stop Shopping Choir. And we are activists who risk arrest together and while we risk arrest, we sing. And the singing is songs that we composed. We didn't invent this. We, we got this from the social movements that succeeded, uh, the abolishing slavery to labor, civil rights, peace movement, ACT UP. I mean, it's just music associated with all the movements that worked. And so uh, we're, we're taking our cues from history. We, we're just completing a, a record now that we really cooked on the road in England. We were uh, with the Stop Shop and Choir of London. We have uh, 25 singers in London at St. John's meeting every week in, um, I don't know, are there many St. John's? Is that a confusing thing to say? There's a, there's a church called St. John's down in the middle of London. And, and, and so we were on two buses zigzagging from city to city to city in November on our way to the Glasgow COP26 conference. We sang our new songs every night, every night, every night, every night, and cooked it that way. Got really confident and made final adjustments on those, on those songs. And those songs are concentrating our preoccupation with the sixth extinction. We're bringing humor and music, sadness and bitterness and happiness and giddiness to this very special environment we're in right now, which is the not some kind of Christian apocalypse. It's not. There's, no, there's nothing fabricated about it. It's it's, it's real. We're in an unprecedented, strange moment in the history of the physical life of this planet. So let's sing about it. Amen. You two are not only partners in activism, but partners in life. How do you make that work, if I may ask? How does that work, Savitri? Um, you know, I think it's, in a way, it's very old-fashioned. I, I, I sort of think that this is probably more how people operated for a long time before, say, industrialization, you know, that people would build a life together and, and sort of make a home together and, and then start building community around that and building the work of community and then, you know, integrating your values into that community. And then suddenly, you know, you have kind of a village and, and you're part of that village. And that the sort of uh, it, it is, there is a lot of tension in it because, of course, it's quite at odds with the sort of individualism that we are taught to, you know, aspire towards or that becomes the proof of our success, you know, in the world. So it's, it's challenging, but it's also very interesting to be in such deep collaboration, right? Because it strengthens your values and it strengthens your, your sort of commitments. And, 
you know, not just as a couple, but as a community, we hold each other up, you know, so there are inevitably times when it's very difficult for me to engage with this work as an activist. It's because it's hard, it's punishing, and there's a lot of failure, you know, um, but I have a community of people gathered around who, you know, they can pick up the slack when I have to let go of the rope, you know, so... I mean, I think that, you know, as a feminist, you know, there's a lot of problematic aspects to having a creative life with my male partner, not because of him, but because of the structures we work in. <laughs> and, you know, we, I'm not saying it's, it's, it has its hazards for sure, but I do think in the end, we're able to build something much larger and more meaningful that has a further reach together than we would apart. Is there something you've had to give up to perform and live your values as activists to, in order to get that larger thing? Oh, Wendy. Money, I mean, money. Where's the money? <laughs> well, I mean, being an activist is, or being an artist, period, I guess, um, living outside of institutional support. And because we work outside of category as well, we're, we're sort of marginalized in every category of commercial society like we're not in the music business we're not really theater people we're not really in the ngo world we're like in between all of these things um it is precarious but of course we are top of the food chain white americans like it's not that precarious um i'd say what we have to give up is what i think a lot of us will have to give up in the near future which is like um, getting to follow your dreams a little bit, like those dreams you have when you're a young person as an artist and you think, oh, I'm going to do this and that and I'm going to have a quote unquote career in the arts or, you know, I'm going to be this. Um, you know, I think a lot of us are going to have to let go of those pretty soon and just kind of get down to it, get down to the work <laughs> of rebuilding our culture and our society around a larger view, which includes other species and the life system of which we are a part. What have you learned from younger activists? Are they using new or old approaches? Do they have a different mindset or, or not really? No, they, have a, they have a way of conveying that the shape of their dreams is different. Now, Savitri just said that the way we're raised in the United States, this expansive quality, this vertical climb into your future that is supposed to lift us up. Everybody can get there, kind of false fiction. <laughs> but that's the way we're raised in this culture. And all the advertising encourages it. The people in their 20s that are in the choir, they can convey a um, impatience with marketing that is so severe. The cutoff of the voice of corporations is so cut and dried. They know that's lying and they don't even spend time with it. I was just gonna say, I, I feel like the young people that we work with are, well, I mean, working with multi-generational groups is really great because they're constantly, you know, we're teaching each other and there's a freshness, right, to the approach, like an energy. They come in with all this velocity, like, wow, we could do this. And, you know, you forget that you tried that 10 times and it didn't work. But, hey, let's do it again. Let's try again. <laughs> um, so there's some of that just energetic appeal, you know. But then mm -hmm. I think also there is a really um, profound shift in um, and fluidity in positioning, right? Like, it's interesting because it's kind of at odds with this concept that identity is all right now. I actually feel like the the young people that we work with and are luck I feel lucky to work with them. They also are aware of 
their position, they, they don't care so much about positioning, right? They don't, there's less of that kind of um, strategic positioning. Where am I? Who am I in this structure? It's more experiential and they're, I think, much more fluid. And that shows up like in gender, it shows up in, in like a class consciousness um, where they are aware of the class divisions, but also willing to just push through them and, and, um, and there's a kind of togetherness that I really appreciate, like a willingness to be miasmic and kind of in a big kind of embryonic like group together um, that my generation, Gen X, certainly did not have at all. What would you say younger activists have learned from you? Well, I think that they see a kind of persistence. Uh, for instance, we have a storefront church in New York in Manhattan, in the village, and we're there every every Sunday at five o'clock. The idea of just being there every Sunday. We've been there every Sunday since in the wintertime sometime. I think that that's something that we can, we know we have to keep repeating. We know we have to, we don't have a million dollars to to sell something in a, in a big splash. We have to be be inspiring with our music and our preaching and our marching down to a local park that has been clear cut and over to the Department of Parks where they still spray with glyphosates. And, you know, we we just have to um, keep at it day in and day out. But it's also an ethical thing. Like, I, I think, and I love that question so much, Wendy. What do you think young activists learn from you? It's such a good question to carry around. I mean, I would say it's about success and failure, right? That we don't do this work because we're succeeding. It's kind of, you know, Billy's describing persistence and, and tenacity. And I think there's an ethical qu question in there, right? It's like you realize that you do this work because it's, it's ethical to do it. You do it because what choice do you have? You know, like, do, can you walk away? From, like, oh, I failed nine times. You know, I failed nine times. But I can't stop trying just because I failed. And I think, um, I think young people do learn that from us. And um, to see that the success is in is in the is in the work and in the is in the effort to to just keep trying because we have no alternative. Mm -hmm. I've got a few more questions. Um, one of them is specific to an episode of Earth Riot that was titled The Earth Cancels the Environment. And I'll just sort of remind what it was about. You speak with a scientist who is raising the question about the role that scientists play in the fight against climate change. And he presents this idea of the scientific community coming together as a critical mass to join civil disobedience and stopping the work that they do. So we are not going to create any more reports and research telling you what we already know about the human impact on the environment. He believes this would be a very strong message that the world is running out of time to do something. What's your take on such an act of civil disobedience if it were to happen from the scientific community? Well, I, I almost had enough time to look up his name while, while you were talking. Yes. I was gonna, yeah, I didn't I write gonna, it down. Gonna, I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, but we felt that in Glasgow, okay. um, the IPCC report, um, was released at the same time as COP26. 
and the weakness of the NGOs, the, the weakness of the traditional environmental movement leaders in the, the big green, as they call the big famous outfits with their millions of dollars and ability to market like corporations. That's what they are as corporations. They utterly failed. And there was by now, it's the fourth time, a walkout on the last day. <laughs> and some of the scientists probably were in that walkout. Uh, it was led by indigenous grandmothers. They walked out of the big gray conference center there that was high security conference center where none of us could go. And they just walked out in a big, you know, it looked like the Israelites in reverse, you know, coming out. And then the, the cops opened the gates and let them out. And uh, they danced with us and, and uh, had a great time. <laughs> I know that um, it was happening with scientists. It was happening with lots of different people. They were saying, I'm going to change my position vis-a-vis -vis this, this large construction of interlocking roles, which is, after all, making a lot of money. I mean, life is really hard right now, right? So what happens when life is hard, people find safety somehow, right? And a lot of us find safety in institutions of various kinds. And that's where we pursue our dreams. That's where we do our best work. A lot of us in the structure of institutions that support us, right? But we say, join the earth. And the only institution that matters right now is the earth itself. So when I think about scientists joining the earth, um, this is civil disobedience, right? That scientist in Los Angeles, you know, he went to a Chase Bank. He did an action there at a Chase Bank that Billy and I have done literally hundreds of times, right? <laughs> but he was going further doing that action because he was walking out of an institution, out of a structure that had supported him, his career, his whole thought process, his, his way of life entirely, right? He was, in a sense, rejecting it by doing that action. Now, I think that all of us really have to examine what this is for each one of us and do what we can do in that regard. So I totally support the scientists, you know, saying, hey, you have enough information. We have enough information. Now we must act. Now we must change. You know, the, the, the presence of data in our life is, is paralyzing. It is overwhelming. We are all of us walking around with way too much data at this point. We know what's happening. And our common sense, of course, tells us too. We know there's 5 million people displaced in Assam right now in India. We know there's uh, heat waves across Europe. We, the southwest of the U.S. is on fire. I mean, you know, the Arctic and the Antarctic are uh, record high temperatures at the same time. I mean, we have the data we need right now. But what we what we are unable to do so far is to is to uh, give up the safety we have, right? So that scientist, mm -hmm. I really applaud him. I wish I could remember his name right now, but um, I applaud him because he made a move, you know, and that's what each one of us have to do in our lives. I totally support him and all the scientists saying, you have the information, we have the information, let us act. These scientists had to watch, after the Paris Climate Agreement, they had to watch the big banks and the, the big oil companies blocked the nation states from continuing with their pledges. The agreement was basically privatized. We all witnessed that. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase uh, famously invested $196 billion right after dating 24 months from the signing of the agreement, almost $200 billion. 
And all the banks followed Chase down that road until um, there was an intensification after the Paris Climate Agreement of CO2 and methane going into the atmosphere. So all everybody had to watch that. Suddenly you're like looking around, you're calling into question the basic assumptions. We have the IPCC report. We have the, the international climate conferences every two years, sometimes one year. We have, we have a set of embedded nature writers in the major media. You look at all that preset stuff and you say, well, it's all adding up to not enough. The earth is out ahead of this. The extinction is accelerating way beyond our response. And yet they come out with a press release. It was at, at Glasgow. The popular corporate press release was, we pledge to have net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. And people just laughed. That's like walking into a Hieronymus Bosch apocalypse. 28 years from now, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna come clean? And then we started asking each other, what do they mean by net? Because there's always, in marketing, there's always that thing, you know, what does that mean? Mm. It just, it's a ditty. It's a, it just sounds good. Net zero. What does that mean? So that's an accounting trick. So uh, we are calling for people to walk back into what nature they can find, slow down, stop, be with nature, listen to what's going on there, change your senses from advertising back to the natural world. We are evolving to be a part of the advertising cycles, but now it's being discovered. It's really wonderful that trees are talking. Trees actually taste and smell. We can't prove what they can't do. They may be storytelling. What do trees do? Better not say they can't do this or that because every time we get a little bit deeper with our clumsy science, we find that they're more and more genius there to be, to be witnessed. So I agree with Savitri. The, the earth is our government. The earth is our economy. The earth is our culture. The earth will have to lead us now because we've blown it. If you could ask one person to do one thing that would change the course of the planet's demise, forgive me for calling it demise, who would it be and what would you ask them to do? Wow, that's a hard question. Um, I would ask um, the U.S. military to disband. I would ask the President of the United States to um, shut down the U.S. military. Okay. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> that's, the, the, that's the most toxic corporation. It is a corporation now. It's, it's not public anymore. That's a good answer. Everybody stop your car and leave it on the highway and take your children and walk sideways through the ditch, into the field, into the forest. Last question is, what's next for Earth Riot? Anything special or anything you want to let Metapod listeners know about? Well, we have these new, new songs coming out. Okay. Savage, you go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, we've just finished a collection of songs. Um, I guess people call those records or albums. <laughs> um, a family of songs that we wrote through the pandemic. They're just coming out in the next couple of weeks. And so I hope people will listen to those. You can find them at revbilly.com. And yeah, that's, that's the main news on our home front. And also that there's a, a new choir in London 
And that's really exciting that we have two communities of people making music together. Yeah. Great. Reverend Billy and Savitri D, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you for joining me on Metapod. Earthaluya. Earthaluya. Thank you, Wendy. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. Amen. Thank you, Wendy. Take care. Take care of yourself. Thank you to Savitri and Billy for talking about Earth Riot and their work more generally. I hope, like me, you'll give Earth Riot a listen the next time you're at the grocery store or anywhere out and about where you feel like having a 30-minute personal podcast riot in your ears. And for the record, I do love all kinds of pizza, even frozen ones from the supermarket. You can read more about Savitri and Reverend Billy's community of performance activism at revbilly.com. And as Savitri mentioned, they have an album coming soon. You can find the music of the Stop Shopping Choir at their website. There are plenty of things to listen to there, and I've put social media links in the show notes for this episode at metapodshow.com. Next up on Metapod, I'll be talking to David Peterkovsky of the Four Keeps podcast. Four Keeps features stories about collections and the people who collect. You don't have to be a collector to appreciate the stories of fascination and dedication that people have for stuff. You'll hear about stamps, music, books, and many other strange types of memorabilia on Four Keeps, but most interesting are the collectors themselves. So check that out in the meantime at fourkeepspodcast.com, and then meet me back here for the chat with David. Thank you for listening to this episode of Metapod, and if you're a loyal listener, super duper thanks to you for coming back to listen. If you'd like to suggest a guest for Metapod or say something nice or maybe just interesting, send me a note via Twitter at The Metapod Show or via Instagram at Metapod Show. Thanks. That's all for now. See you next time. That's it for Metapod this time. Thanks for listening. Metapod will be back soon with another unpacking of the web's most interesting podcasts. But in the meantime, make sure to subscribe at any of the usual places you find your other favourite podcasts. We'd hate for you to miss upcoming episodes, and we'd love it if you left us a review. You can let us know what you think of this episode by going to metapodshow.com. We'll see you next time. This episode of Metapod was recorded, edited, and produced by me, Wendy Morrill.